Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on World Footprints Radio, the multi-award winning show for travelers by travelers. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Today, we'll explore some topics in the world of travel, particularly study abroad programs, with Yahoo Travel's Editor-in-Chief, Paula Froelich. And we'll head to the American Sun Belt as only world footprints can do for some surprising discoveries about the popular destinations of San Antonio and Orlando as they look to change their global profiles through an emphasis on cultural preservation, heritage, and the arts. Thanks, dear. World Footprints recently attended the White House Travel Blogger Summit on Study Abroad and Global Citizenship. The summit's purpose was to highlight U.S. government initiatives and strategies for encouraging American students to study, volunteer, and work abroad. The White House invited top travel media influencers, including Yahoo Travel's editor-in-chief, Paula Froelich. Paula stops by to talk about the summit and the potential to grow study abroad opportunities for student travelers of all ages, particularly among college students, as well as to discuss some of her recent travels, including a ski trip in Afghanistan. You look at something like Afghanistan in the north where it's peaceful, but here's the problem. It's peaceful, but there's 60 to 70 percent unemployment, Mm -hmm. and during the winter, because it's farming communities, nobody works. So why not, why not build something like a ski program? The city of San Antonio is one of the oldest European settlements in Texas and, for decades, its largest city. For thousands of years, well before its settlement by the Spanish, various cultures of indigenous peoples have lived in this part of south-central Texas. Today, San Antonio is a growing metropolitan center that honors and preserves the past. Thanks to its Spanish colonial missions, San Antonio is garnering attention for inclusion on UNESCO's World Heritage List and is widely recognized for its national leadership in urban ecosystem restoration thanks to some smart, forward-thinking investments. Richard Oliver from the San Antonio Convention and Visitors Bureau joins us to discuss why San Antonio should be at the top of your travel list. The Alamo and the four other uh, Catholic missions that are uh, the Spanish colonial missions that are a big part of our landscape, that is really the foundation, along with the Riverwalk, of this city. I mean, every time anyone uh, drives around and they see the, they see those uh, Catholic missions, four of them are still Catholic parishes that are functioning. Everyone knows Orlando, Florida, is the theme park capital of the world. But there's another side to Orlando that's undiscovered. The other Orlando is a treasure trove of rich cultural offerings and historical sites including one of the country's newest National Historic Landmarks, the Maitland Arts Center. Last year, the Maitland Arts Center became Orlando's first National Historic Landmark. Andrea Bailey-Cox is the Executive Director of the Maitland Arts Center, and she joins us to share the oasis of creativity that's changing how the world sees Orlando. What makes our um, campus so unique is that it takes that Mayan revival architecture that was popular in the 30s, and since it was built in 37, and then it grows that um, all the way until our founder passed away in 59. And what I mean by that is that he never left that style. 
And so we have 12 different buildings that evolved over time and had more and more sculptural relief added to them, mural work. So it's truly a masterpiece of Mayan revival style. We hope you'll enjoy our conversations with Yahoo Travel's Paula Forlix and our travels to San Antonio and Orlando's Maitland Arts Center on today's show. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. World Footprints recently attended the White House Travel Blogger Summit on Study Abroad and Global Citizenship. The summit's purpose was to highlight U.S. government initiatives and strategies for encouraging American students to study, volunteer, and work abroad. The White House invited top travel media influencers, including our next guest, Paula Froelich, Editor-in-Chief at Yahoo Travel, to discuss innovative ways we can work with the Obama administration to significantly increase the number and diversity of young people participating in educational, cultural, and professional experiences internationally. Paula, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you for having me. You know, I should have known when we first met at the White House that I was speaking to a fellow Midwesterner. I can always always point us out. <laughs> you know, we just don't obfuscate. Yeah. It's just kind of no beating around the bush. Here you go. <laughs> and we're salt of the earth, too, you know. And so exactly. we need to chat, too. Well, wel- welcome back. I know you were uh, just recently uh, traveling to Oman in Switzerland. How, how oh, my gosh, I was. Oh, tell us a little bit about your travels. And, and was this personal, or were you on assignment for Yahoo? I was, well, I also do a show called Abroad Abroad, and so I filmed in Oman, and then I went to Switzerland to meet up with a bunch of people that I met while skiing in Afghanistan last year. Wow, wow, skiing in Afghanistan. Fun fact. Well, that's what I was talking about when we were at the White House Travel Summit, and all I could think was... I think, you know, it sounds really flip to say that tourism can actually save a country or it can actually build a country, and it's not. You look at something like Colombia, right? Mm-hmm. Colombia 10 years ago was terrifying, and they had no real economy besides just an economy, a commodity-based economy, and of those commodities, it was cocaine was leading the pack, and you, the way that you combat these gross things in society is to look at people and say, here's another alternative. You can get paid. You can take care of your family. You can educate your children all safely. And you can do this with, if you, I'm sorry, you can do this if you follow these rules and if you do this. And tourism is a viable a viable thing to do this with. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in um, I was in Colombia trekking, and all the guys who led the treks were former narcos. And they looked at me and they said, "You know what? Here's the deal: we don't get paid as much, but nobody's dying, and we like our lives now, and we're safe. Please tell people to come back." Mm. Okay. We're, and we're, so you look at something like Afghanistan in the north, where it's peaceful, but here's the problem: it's peaceful, but there's sixty to seventy percent unemployment. Mm-hmm. And during the winter, because it's farming communities, nobody works. So why not why not build something like a ski program where they have these beautiful mountains in the Hindu Kush and the Koh-i-Noor Mountains? Why not build a ski program for to give these young people 
jobs and really good paying jobs, by the way, right. on the four months that they're not working. Right. And, and you know, and when I first heard about the White House Travel Blogger Summit, um, my first impression was, um, you know, the focus would be on encouraging international visitors to, to this country because, you know, we have come through a, um, a declining economy and, and, and a lot of us have been preaching about the correlation between mm-hmm. travel and economic development. And so um, when I got there and, and looked at the program, you know, I was actually pleasantly surprised to see the White House acknowledge the role that international travel plays in the development of America's workforce, in addition to the importance that uh, of international travel um, to this this country. I mean, what what were your first thoughts uh, when you heard about the the travel summit? Um, I started laughing. I was like, "Are you kidding me? What the heck? <laughs> All right." <laughs> I also kind of said, to be honest with you, I was like, oh, this is going to be a bunch of hooey because, again, as I said there, you know what, I can't afford study abroad. A lot of it was about study abroad. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I couldn't afford study abroad. I had to get scholarship and grants just to go to college. And granted, I went to a great one, and that's awesome. And no, and I couldn't afford it. I couldn't do it. Yes, I wanted to do it, and I did it immediately after traveling. But, you know, it's ironic that really the only time in life that traveling is really, really expensive and, you know, like for like forbiddenly so is during college because you don't have a job or you do, but you're paying, you know, it's work study or you're just paying for gas. Mm-hmm. And you, if you take any time off, then a lot of credits don't transfer. So you have to wait until after college and then you can go backpacking and then it's cheap and then you can work your way around the world. But in college, you can't. And I still don't know if the White House has figured out how to get schools to transfer credits. I really only know of a couple school, schools that have transferable credits. And then how do you pay for it? Well, you know, and then how do you pay for little incidentals? Like, well, how do I pay for my flight over there? You right. know, $1,200 is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. Right, right, on top of the, the cost of the, the program itself. A hundred percent. And how do you pay for food? Mm-hmm. How do you pay for fill-in-the-blank? Yeah, how do you pay for your toothpaste? You know, like, these are the kind of things that are not included in everyone's, like, you know, ooh, but this is all transferred over on grants. Okay. What about the other, the you know, the soft costs you're not thinking about? Right, right. So so you participated um, in the panel discussion regarding studying, volunteering, and working abroad as a civic and economic imperative. Were there any takeaways for you, and and how do you see uh, Yahoo Travel fitting into the the equation, the narrative? You know, my takeaways are that I'm really glad that this administration does actually understand that it's important for people not to do that. It's important for people to not just be local, that in a truly globalized society, we all need to globalize in a way. And the way that Yahoo Travel does it is, Let's say you can't leave your house. That's cool. We're bringing it to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, we bring all. We have all sorts of stories that we post. We have all sorts of personalities up there, and we bring the world to your door, and we help you dream a little bit, and we help expo- uh, expand your horizons mm-hmm. and broaden your horizons. You know, and and then the concept of global citizenship, which is a, a you know something that we try to foster here with World Footprints, but it means different things, I think, to different people. Um, 
what does it mean to you, the, the concept of global citizenship to, to you and, and actually Yahoo Travel Corporation? If it's different. Well, personally, personally, it means something. I'll tell you a funny story. So I once had a job that I really, really hated. Okay, and I was like, oh, how do no I get out of here? No names. Yeah, totally. No <laughs> names. Uh, certainly not the one I have now. It was at another company. Really loathed it. Couldn't deal with it. And I sat there and I go, oh, God, how am I going to travel and do interesting stuff? So I, of course, applied for the CIA, as one does. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> totally. And, by the way, the last job was, it, it was a, a gossip columnist. So of course, the... The interview didn't go that much farther past the, when the woman goes, you know, I Googled you and you challenged Tara Reid to a Jello wrestling match. And I go, absolutely. <laughs> I was going to kick her butt. I wanted her to be as comfortable as possible. And Jello shot to her milieu. Oh, but dear. in that interview, she goes, what are the top three countries that you think are the biggest danger to the United States? And during the time, I actually said, well, Mexico. And it was before Mexico's uh, drug wars had really flared up again. Mm-hmm. And she goes, well, why do you say that? And I said, because you're only as safe as your neighbor. Hmm. And, you know, to really understand, you know, I just, I just think the global community is to understand that you're not one ripple here is a huge tidal wave over there. Mm-hmm. And the tidal wave that hits us here is a ripple that started all the way over there. Right, right. I think you you actually mentioned that um, on your uh, your panel. I, I this is vaguely familiar to me. Oh, I forget my panel. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> well, I you go know, into, I go into mode. Oh no, I understand. But but we did uh, share highlights. If if you want a refresher, you know, you can uh, listen to the highlights of a radio show. Awesome. <laughs> So when you when you do visit other destinations, what really resonates with you? What do you look for? What do you feel? What do you see? Do you know what I look for? Well, first of all, I go for the culture. So, you know, for example, I think I might have mentioned this. Um, South Africa I found very upsetting. I don't need to go back right now. Um, I found it to be... It's really segregated. They treat animals better than they do people. Mm -hmm. And also the problem is, you know, they say, oh, the wildlife, the wildlife. Well, guess what? Kruger National Park, to me, is like one big uh, bush, you know, big uh, safari park. Or not, you know, what it is, it's in Orlando. Mm -hmm. You know that safari park, Bush Gardens. Yeah, yeah. So Kruger, Kruger, Kruger National Park, to me, is like Bush Gardens, right? It's a bunch of animals. It's like an open zoo, and there are no people, whereas... Because all the people, the indigenous people, were moved off 100, 150 years ago by, by, you know, I think it was described to me as, yes, we paid them for their land. And you're like, what, for $2 when they didn't understand the contract? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go to Kenya or Tanzania, there are the Maasai, there are the other, you know, there are actual people who live on the land. So it's not like a zoo. Do you know what I mean? So you you get more of an immersion experience, more more authenticity. One hundred percent. Yeah, one hundred percent. And you also like, you know, you want to feel comfortable. And I frankly just did not feel comfortable in a fully segregated society where the majority of people with skin darker than mine live in disgusting conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I and that's, so that I do notice those kind of things. Like yeah. you notice what is the person and what you want to look at, and then you also notice things like. Is there a standard of living? Like the best thing about Oman was, Oman's not the richest country, but there seemed to be a standard of living that the entire country complied with. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't the insanely poor. Yes, there was the very, very rich, but there was not the insanely poor. 
So, so not the economic divide even that we see in this country? A hundred percent. Listen, wow. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And, yes, I'm from Ohio and Kentucky. And, you know, half an hour from where I grew up, there are people who have never been five miles out of their own radius yeah. and probably make about five grand a year. Yeah. And it's uh, all the old coal mining communities, you know. So, yeah, that is also disturbing and uncomfortable. But when you travel, you do you do tend to look for things. Mm-hmm. And it's also just interesting to see the cultures and see how we're different and why, you know, I've always been one of those things, if I don't understand something or it makes me uncomfortable, I want to dive into it right. and see what is the root and what is going on. Okay. And then I, I don't have to go back after that, but I do want to check it out. So so for, say, the coming year, years or so, if you were to pick destinations that uh, we should watch for or uh, really consider, your your top picks, would Oman be one of them? And if so, Absolutely. Okay. And what are some of the uh, others? It would be Oman. I would say Greenland. I would say Mongolia. I would hmm. say Bhutan. I would say the United States. Hmm. Okay. Any particular you know, there's, reason? Um, there's amazing... Yeah, there's amazing places in the United States that people don't even consider. Like, you look at South Dakota, right. and South Dakota is a magical, magical state, and nobody ever thinks of going there. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's a crying shame, because it's just jaw-droppingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Enrich in history, I would imagine. Absolutely. You know, you can do... You know, while I do love uh, international travel, I do think domestic travel is also very important. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, you know, the United States is 50 different countries with 50 very different personalities. Right, right. And so, you know, I kind of look at us as like the original global community. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, because we are. We are. And, you know, when you look at cities like San Antonio that, you know, is formed um, on, you know, because of Spanish resettlement back in the 1700s, and you know, and just look at the different cultures that actually populated through New Orleans, for example. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of diversity um, in in history in this country. I agree with you. Um, I was actually uh, pleased um, to to learn. Uh, I learned two things about you in the last 24 oh. hours. Um, one is that you won an award from the uh, North American Travel Journalists Association in, in 2012 for your Playboy article, Down and Out yep. in Baghdad. And I was shocked because I didn't realize, you know, I'm not a frequent reader of Playboy, but I didn't realize they had a travel column. <laughs> um, it wasn't actually for a travel column. It was for the main magazine. It was on the front page. It was on the front cover. Wow. It was just such a, yeah, it's, they, they, they do do a little bit of travel, but I was not a travel writer. I was actually just a contributing editor for them. Still mm-hmm. am. But it's, you know, people read Playboy for the, uh, the articles. You know that? <laughs> that's what they say. Yes, of course. <laughs> Listen, that's what I told my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and your show, Abroad Abroad, tell us a little bit about that. You know, I, first of all, it's my dream show, and I love it. But it's also filling a void because if you look at the statistics, the majority of money spent on travel comes from women. So women are responsible for 85% of travel budgets. You also look at the average adventure traveler is mm-hmm. a 47-year-old woman, not like a 25-year-old Red Bull drinker. <laughs> and 
also when I was out there in the world and I spent four and a half years traveling and it was a lot of women and I just sat there and I went, well, why is this not being reflected mm-hmm. in U.S. media? Why is there no show for me? And so usually I, I, I did what I always like to do is if, you know, if no one's got a playground for me to play on, I just, I just build my own. Good for you. Good for you. That's Yeah, and it was kind of like... You know, so for abroad, abroad, it's like, you know, you're just going out there doing cool stuff, doing cool things, meeting great, interesting people, and, you know, just creating a space for travel that's fun and interesting, and it's also, guess what, it's done by a woman, because, I mean, I had a bunch of people tell me, you know what women like? Women like beaches, and I was like, oh, for Christ's sake, what? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, like, how to stereotype me. Um, <laughs> oh, so where where can people find your show? Uh, if you go to, there's several ways to find it. Mm. If you go to yahoo-travel.com or yahoo.com slash travel, and there is a nav, a nav tag. It's the second one, Abroad Abroad. Or you go to screen.yahoo.com slash abroad abroad. Got or it. just type in Abroad Abroad in Google, and I think it comes up first thing. Okay. Or yeah. Yahoo. <laughs> okay. Good deal. Good deal. Well, you know, you're, you uh, all the travels, I'm so glad that we caught you. Um, in yeah, me too. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure, and it was so great meeting you at, at the White House. And um, I know. Do you ever come to New York City? All the time. All the time. Okay, well, next time you're in New York, give us a buzz. Let's go hang out. Will do. And, and certainly the next time you come down here, um, let oh, me know. Whether White House or absolutely. not, you know, there, there's there's a good culinary scene going on here, and we know all the places. So um, I'm all about that. We look forward to I just having... want to eat my way around the world. <laughs> that sounds, you know, that's another good show concept. FYI. I know. <laughs> Eating around the world. Right, right. Well, Paula Froelich, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. After the break, the Alamo City, San Antonio, Texas, is poised to grow its global stature thanks to its nomination for inclusion as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Thanks to some smart investments in restoring urban ecosystems, San Antonio's star is brighter than it's ever been. Richard Oliver of the City's Convention and Visitors Bureau joins us to talk about what's buzzing in the Alamo City. The Alamo and the four other uh, Catholic missions that are uh, the Spanish colonial missions that are a big part of our landscape, that is really the foundation, along with the Riverwalk, of this city. I mean, every time anyone uh, drives around and they see the, they see those uh, Catholic missions, four of them are still Catholic parishes that are functioning. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, this is Johnny from New Orleans. Welcome, World Footprints, and come visit us in New Orleans sometime. Hi, this is Jennifer Coolidge. The American Heart Association says the disco song Stayin' Alive is the near-perfect beat for hands-only CPR. If you see a teen or adult collapse from cardiac arrest, you only need two steps to help save a life. Call 911 and push hard and fast in the center of the chest to the beat of the song Stayin' Alive. Disco is back and it's saving lives. To learn more, go to heart.org slash handsonlycpr. Nationally supported by the Wellpoint Foundation. My father had prostate cancer. My grandfather, two great uncles, died from it. I wish I'd known about the family history, but it just wasn't talked about. My name's Lonnie. I had my prostate removed in May of 1995, and I'm still here. 
So there is life after prostate cancer. I'm living proof. One thing I would want to share with any man that thinks that he may have prostate cancer is number one, get it checked. Secondly, you have time after the diagnosis. Read, learn, go talk with your doctor and make some decisions because knowledge is power. It cannot be understated, you know. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men in Michigan. If you've been diagnosed, talk with your health care provider about your options and visit prostatecancerdecision.org today. Sponsored by the Michigan Department of Community Health, the Michigan Cancer Consortium, and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters. More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year, illegally. Poaching is just one of the risks animals face at our hands. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor. I grew up in the beautiful rural countryside of Ohio, where animals roam freely in the open forests. I have a deep concern to help preserve those open spaces for our wildlife friends so they can live and thrive like they used to. Destruction of their habitats threaten their very existence. The best way to protect wildlife is to protect the land where they live. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats, and establish permanent sanctuaries. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE. Or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. This is Reba McIntyre for RAD. You know, I see a lot of funny things traveling all over this beautiful country of ours, but one thing that's not very funny is when someone gets in a car trying to drive when they're drunk. Take their keys away from them because friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Hi, my name is... As a two-year Sarah, I am from Samoa, and I really love the World Footprints Radio, and I love this family that talks to me like friends to me. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. The city of San Antonio is one of the oldest European settlements in Texas and was for decades its largest city. Before Spanish colonization, the site was occupied for thousands of years by varying cultures of indigenous peoples, most notably the Payaya Indians. In the 1970s, San Antonio grew to become the largest Spanish settlement in Texas. Today, San Antonio is notable for its Spanish colonial missions, the Alamo Riverwalk Tower of the Americas, the Alamo Bowl, various military installations, and Marriage Island. The Spanish colonial missions of San Antonio, including the Alamo, are gaining global recognition as the United States nominates them for inclusion on the UNESCO World Heritage List. The city also leads the nation in urban ecosystem restoration. And that's just a sample of some new and exciting things that are happening in San Antonio, Texas. But there's much more, and Richard Oliver from the San Antonio Convention and Visitors Bureau joins us to discuss why San Antonio should be on everyone's travel bucket list. Richard, welcome to World Footprints. Tanya, so happy to talk about San Antonio. 
I, I can tell in your voice. <laughs> now, the, the city has a lot of great things happening, including its entrance on the global stage as a possible UNESCO World Heritage Site. How excited are you guys? Oh, we're really excited. I tell you what, the countdown has begun. The selection will be made later this year. And, you know, the city has made so many investments in that area that we're very excited about the opportunity. And it's one of the things that history is everything in San Antonio, as you might expect. I mean, you just kind of listed off many of the things that we're very excited about and that we're very invested in in San Antonio. And the Alamo and the four other uh, Catholic missions that are uh, the Spanish colonial missions that are a big part of our landscape, that is really the foundation, along with the Riverwalk, of this city. I mean, every time anyone uh, drives around and they see the, they see those uh, Catholic missions, four of them are still Catholic parishes that are functioning and, and still in operation, uh, stretching all the way back. It's just the heartbeat and the lifeblood of San Antonio when we talk about those. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was actually surprised to, to learn that uh, four of those missions still operate as Catholic parishes. And I, I'm curious, you know, with the, the millions of visitors uh, that the missions receive each year. Um, how does the how does the city and, and the, the the missions themselves preserve the structures while allowing guests, you know, an authentic experience? Well, it's a great question, and I tell you, the one thing that's wonderful about each of these missions, uh, the four missions, and and the Alamo, which of course has got visitors coming in and out all the time, but. When you talk about Mission Concepcion, Mission San Jose, Mission San Juan, and Mission Espada, all of them are strung like pearls along that San Antonio Riverwalk, and they're just beautiful. And what they do is they're able to hold the the, uh, the services. They're able to quinceañeras are in there sometimes. There's weddings that are in there. Um, and what they do is that, the, that during those times, the, the landscape around each of those missions is so beautiful and so landscaped beautifully that they're able to have tourism and, and things happening around it while they're still having masses and services and, and all the different things in the, the structures themselves. And uh, it's just kind of a nice little uh, little marriage there of, of, of having a, a mass going on at the same time as people are still able to walk around and see the wonderful architecture from the outside. But then those other hours when everything is clear and open on the inside, you get to go inside and see some of the most beautiful Catholic parishes uh, in the country. Mm. Now, you know, when I think of San Antonio, the first thought that always pops into my mind is the river walk. I'm a water baby, and so water always resonates with me. <laughs> and and I know you've recently expanded uh, the river walk, and, and as you just infer, mentioned, you know, the river walk actually connects um, the the missions, which I, I think is a wonderful uh, wonderful thing, but it's part of the... Um, uh, the urban ecosystem uh, renovation that the city is is uh, actually developing or taking the lead on uh, throughout the country. Talk a little bit about that process. Well, I'm not sure there's anything that we're more excited about than over the past few years, the city investing in the Riverwalk. I mean, you know, when you think about the Riverwalk itself, it dates back to the 1920s. Um, one of the great uh, uh, targets for tourism for San Antonio is that the beautiful structuring of the R- San Antonio River and the Riverwalk and the development downtown, well, it's gone from, you know, about three miles long to 15 miles long just in the last few years. And it's an amazing investment by the city that, as you said, really 
goes to the heartbeat of what San Antonio is all about, and that is repurposing, uh, committing to history, committing to the ecosystem and all the different things that go into that. $358.3 million was the money that the city put into expanding that riverwalk, Tanya. And, you know, more than 245, I'm sorry, more than 245 million of that is for that Mission Reach Ecosystem Restoration and Recreation mm-hmm. Project, which is on the south side of San Antonio. That goes past four of the Spanish colonial missions. And it's pretty, it's just remarkable. When you think about it, it is the nation's, as you said earlier, it's the nation's largest urban ecosystem restoration. And we can go down the checklist of the different things that have happened there. That's eight miles of river that has been turned back into a functioning part of the San Antonio River. Uh, we've seen a return of aquatic life. Uh, there's so much diversity going on with our wildlife life now. There's pools and runs and riffles and you being a water baby, you'll know what I'm talking about. They do all the different kind of things to keep that water clear and, and pure and pristine. And they restored, I think it's more than 300 acres of riparian habitat. I mean, there's all kinds of native wildflowers in there. Grass, they've, they've seeded for grass. Over 60 different native species are back in that area. They planted more than 20,000 trees and shrubs. Uh, I think that's like 40 different native species. The whole idea is that they want the wildlife in there, and they want people to go in there and enjoy. You're in San Antonio, but when you go down to that mission reach of the San Antonio River now, uh, biking, hiking, uh, there's even kayaking down there now, you feel like you're just in a whole different world. And mm-hmm. it's just wonderful. And I, that's what this city's vision is all about. They preserve natural landscape here. And it's, uh, they repurpose buildings, they repurpose rivers, they do everything they can to make the city uh, really a commit to ecotourism and ecosystems. Oh, that that's wonderful. I mean, that's, you know, part of what World Footprints is all all about, the sustainability. So I applaud you guys. Um, you know, one of the, the, the things, another thing that resonates with me is um, art. And you just launched a um, a video installation um, in the in North America's oldest cathedral sanctuary, the San Fernando Cathedral, and and I know this is part of your history preservation um, uh, mission and, and value. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's wonderful, and you know, it's it's, it's actually uh, I'm I'm an old skeptic. I'm an old journalist, you know, and I walk around, I see things, I think, oh, I, I read the literature on something, and I'll go experience it myself. And I tell you, Tanya, I went and saw the saga, which is what we call that. The saga is the installation over there uh, that they project on San Fernando Cathedral, and it was it was markedly more impressive than anything I had had expected. It's it's wonderful. I don't know if you've ever been to Disney. Uh, Disney World is the best example I tell everybody is that every night before they do the parade at Disney, they project everything on Cinderella's Castle, and there's this wonderful video display. Well, this is better. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely, it's wonderful. It's a new video art installation, and it tells the story of San Antonio. It's projected, as you said, on San Fernando Cathedral. That's the oldest cathedral, it's the only oldest sanctuary in North America. Uh, a French artist came in. It's his first outdoor video art installation in the United States, certainly, and it's it's going to be a main feature of this destination for about the next ten years. And it is incredible. The music, the projection on the facade of the cathedral is just gorgeous. And it it traces the story of the people of South Texas in and around San Antonio. And it's only about 20 minutes long, but they do it uh, four nights a week. And 
Um, and on a beautiful night, we have 300 days of sunshine a year, but every night here in San Antonio, except for rare exceptions, are just beautiful to sit under the stars or sit in the real temperate conditions. And you sit in that main plaza and you sit there in front of San Fernando Cathedral and you watch them do that projection on it. Uh, and it's absolutely breathtaking. Mm, well, Richard, I'll tell you, as, as an attorney also, uh, you're presenting a very compelling argument for visiting San Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. That's what I like to do. But it's you know it's a city that has a great diversity. And then you know Tanya, you've gone over so many different things about San Antonio that that uh, it's all about history. But there is so much new here. There's so much other things that are happening. That um, and and the commitment to arts, the commitment to culture, the commitment to history. Uh, San Antonio offers all that, and it's a big reason why we had. 31 million visitors last year and drove about $13.4 billion in economic impact from tourism in San Antonio. Uh, it's a big industry, but the city invests in it, and I think that's why it's so successful. I'm embarrassed to say that I've not visited San Antonio before. I've had relatives uh, who lived in the city, have heard lots of wonderful things about the city, but I personally uh, have not uh, traveled to San Antonio for so for somebody like me um, who wants to experience a destination, San Antonio, from a local's perspective, who wants that authentic and, you know, immersion experience, um, what are some of the hidden treasures that I should see and what are some of the things I should do that you guys as locals do and see every day? Well, one of the things is, of course, uh, I imagine you like to eat. And oh, yeah. one of the things you come to, <laughs> one of the things you come to San Antonio, we have the Culinary Institute of America here, and it's only one of only three in the United States. And the reason I bring that up is it's uh, it's only been here for about three years, but it has absolutely changed the culinary landscape of San Antonio. Uh, restaurants have come up, uh, just blossomed everywhere around the city uh, because of that culinary influence and the idea of having that kind of a powerful culinary uh, institution on the landscape. It's made it a wonderful uh, addition to the city. And I bring that up also because it's in a wonderful area. And in the, just north of downtown, it's called the Pearl Brewery. And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the sustainability and the um, the devotion of this city to its history and its culture and everything else. Well, it's a wonderful place. The Pearl Brewery is the birthplace of Pearl Beer, which was a longtime staple of the San Antonio economy. Well, that whole area has been revitalized. It's an art-filled urban village. It's next to the Riverwalk. Uh, there's preservations, additions continuously being made all over the place. It's a wonderful eco-friendly technology, including the whole complex just about is is powered by the largest solar panel system in all of Texas. And it's a, it's a wonderful place to go. There's to, to live. They've got lofts there. There's there's learning areas. There's shopping, working, playing. Uh, we love to talk about the Pearl area and what's happening out there because what it is is it's, again, a place where it demonstrates how San Antonio repurposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these old buildings that have been falling apart and, and, and have not been a very vibrant part of the landscape have been repurposed and rebuilt. And uh, the Hotel Emma, which will be a Kempton property, an exclusive property right on the Riverwalk, is actually the old Pearl Brew House, and it's being repurposed into a hotel. Uh, and one of the wonderful things about it is they've been dredging and digging around the river and putting all this construction together, and they've been finding all these widgets and gadgets and gizmos that were associated with the Pearl Brewery. And Tanya, they're redoing them. They're taking everything they find, they're making into sculptures and, and chan- chandeliers and 
all kinds of really cool things. It's going to be in the hotel. It's in all the restaurants and everything else. Uh, nothing goes to waste. And I think there's not a place in San Antonio. It's a hidden treasure right now, but I don't expect it's going to be for much longer. Uh, if you were coming into San Antonio, I would take you over there just to show you that this kind of represents what the city's all about, taking mm-hmm. what you've got from your history and making it into something new. Well, Richard, I, I thank you because you've given me, you know, it's hard to kind of create visual images um, in an audio uh, forum, but you've done a wonderful job of that. And, and like I said, you know, as a fellow, uh, as an attorney, I um, I appreciate <laughs> Uh, the compelling <laughs> argument, you know, if, if I were trying a case, I would have you join me. <laughs> you, uh, oh, I, I love to hear that. I love that. Yeah, I think you missed your other calling. Um, but <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. <laughs> but I, I thank you so much for, for joining us on World Footprints and, and sharing a lot of these wonderful um, things, the hidden treasures, the exciting news. Um, crossing, uh, you know, my fingers for San Antonio's entrance into the uh, World Heritage List. I mean, you'll be joining the ranks of, you know, um, the pyramids and uh, Stonehenge and, you know, these other wonderful uh, structures. And uh, and so crossing my fingers for you guys. Uh, we have, we're getting goosebumps just thinking about it because it's something that we feel is going to add so much to this, to this community. And, and gives us credence and cachet in a way that we feel like we've had it for a long time, but it's nice to get that stamp on it. Indeed. And, uh, and that would, that would certainly do it. And listen, uh, the Alamo is, is something special in this country, and, and to see it recognized in that way will be truly remarkable. Absolutely. And then, you know, the, the, the phrase, remember the Alamo, will, <laughs> I mean, it will have a, a global, uh, Global significance um, with that, with the uh, heritage oh, list. Oh, absolutely, and that, and that also, and that's a wonderful way to put it. I didn't even thought about that. that. If we can incorporate that in our advertising, that'd be great. Remember the Alamo for an entirely different reason now. There you go. So that, <laughs> that'd be wonderful. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tanya. Coming up, everyone knows Orlando as the world's theme park capital. But a little-known art center is looking to put Orlando and Central Florida on the map as an international art center. We'll get the inside story on the Maitland Art Center and its ambitions to make Orlando known for the arts from the Maitland's executive director, Andrea Bailey-Cox. What makes our um, campus so unique is that it takes that Mayan revival architecture that was popular in the 30s, and since it was built in 37, and then it grows that um, all the way until our founder passed away in 59. And what I mean by that is that he never left that style. And so we have 12 different buildings that evolved over time and had more and more sculptural relief added to them, mural work. So it's truly a masterpiece of Mayan revival style. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. And now for the number one play of the week. You couldn't ask for a better finish. He moves left. He sees an opening. He's at the designated driver booth, and it looks like he's pledging. He's going to make sure his friends and family buckle up and get home safely. With that play, the designated driver one step closer to following his favorite team to the Super Bowl. Because responsibility has its rewards. To find out more, visit the designated driver booth at the stadium or www.rhir.org. A message from this station and Team Coalition. Human trafficking is the fastest-growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third-world problem. 
But neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. To report human trafficking or to learn more, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. Go ahead. Open it. Thanks. It's a baby hazmat suit. It'll help protect your baby. There are other ways to help protect yourself and your loved ones against certain diseases. Vaccines can help and are not only important for babies and young children, but throughout your entire lifetime. To learn more about vaccines for all stages of life, talk to your healthcare professional today. A public service of Healthy Women and Merck. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, my name is Emeline. I'm from Korea. I love Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Everyone knows Orlando, Florida is the theme park capital of the world, but there is another side to Orlando that is undiscovered. This other Orlando contains a treasure trove of rich cultural offerings and historical sites, including one of the country's newest national historic landmarks, the Maitland Art Center. Founded in 1937, the Maitland Arts Center was built in the rare Mayan Revival-style architecture and existed as a colony where prominent artists lived and explored new art forms. Today, the center houses significant collections and continues to cultivate the talent of emerging artists. In October 2014, the Maitland Arts Center became Orlando's first National Historic Landmark. Andrea Bailey Cox is the executive director of the Maitland Arts Center, and she joins us to share the oasis of creativity that await beyond the amusement park gates. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. So congratulations on the Maitland Arts Center's historical designation and Orlando's first national historic landmark. Yes, we're very excited. It's actually the first landmark in four counties, so it's a wonderful thing to be here, to experience the site, and to have this sort of recognition. These national uh, historic designations are not handed out uh, too freely. You know, not everyone can, can get one, so an attraction has to exceptionally illustrate or interpret the heritage of the United States. And I believe that's something that the Secretary of Interior said as she um, awarded the, the Art Center this designation. 
Yes, it's been the dream of many volunteers, staff members, board members for a number of years to receive this landmark status. And it, it took about two years from initially hiring a scholar to work on the nomination, which is very similar to a dissertation. And then it actually goes up to D.C., gets orally defended, goes through several committees, and eventually has to be signed off by the Secretary of the Interior. My goodness, what an accomplishment. Um, so give me an, uh, just a, an idea of where Maitland is in relationship to Orlando. We're just 15 minutes north of downtown Orlando, so very convenient to the whole Central Florida area, right on the major interstate here, I-4. Um, however, when you come down our little side street and you get to experience both sides of the street of the Maitland Arts Center campus, it truly feels like no place else, and it feels like you're miles and miles and miles away from any sort of urban area. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, uh, you know, actually the, the center's um, illustration of American heritage actually started with a rare architectural style um, that you've incorporated, the Mayan revival. And I've heard the Mayan revival described as fantasy architecture. What exactly is that style of architecture? Well, it's really interesting. It actually became popular for a short period of time during the Art Deco movement, and there were several architects that worked in the Mayan Revival style, including our own founder, Andre Smith, but also Frank Lloyd Wright. And usually Mayan Revival architecture included simplified building forms and then a lot of applied sculptural relief that would be in a Mayan or Aztec iconography. Mm-hmm. And what makes our um, campus so unique is that it takes that Mayan revival architecture that was popular in the 30s, and since it was built in 37, and then it grows that um, all the way until our founder passed away in 59. And what I mean by that is that he never left that style. And so we have 12 different buildings that evolved over time and had more and more sculptural relief added to them, mural work. So it's truly a masterpiece of Mayan revival style. Now, the, the full title of your facility is the Art and History Museum's Maitland Arts Center. So is the center actually a member of uh, a group of art and history museums throughout the area or throughout the city? Yes, we have two different campuses, and we have five museums. The Maitland Arts Center is our largest museum. It's on about almost three acres with 12 different buildings. We also have several niche collections as well as a historic house museum. Okay, so take us on an audio tour of of the grounds. What could we, um, you know, as people who have not visited before, what what would we see? What would what would we experience and feel? Well, as you arrive on our campus, it's a beautiful brick-lined street, and you come upon what looks like a large courtyard of small, individual, whitewashed buildings. Everything is on one story. It has a very familiar, intimate scale to it. Um, All of the roofs have this very interesting Mayan revival um, style, which is that they have a lot of steps to them, if that makes sense. So you look at them, and um, much like you would see in Central America, they sort of step down on the sides. So we have some large towers, and then we have a courtyard wall on one side that actually encloses all of the campus. And then on the other side, there's another courtyard wall. So it very much, as you enter the courtyard, you have this feeling of an oasis and of a retreat. And since it was originally an artist colony, that was very purposeful. 
And one of the things that we do now, of course, is very much invite the public in. Mm -hmm. Originally, as an artist colony, it was a very insular community where artists came down during the winter months. So we have all of these various studios where artists came and they lived and worked in these spaces. And it was very important to our founder that all of these studio spaces have an interesting connection to the outside. So there's a lots of small little gardens and courtyards that connect the studio spaces. It's very much a balance between having isolation to be able to do your work and also a sense of collaboration. So many of these small courtyards open up onto larger courtyards, and there are some communal spaces where the artists would come together, especially during meals, and they were encouraged to discuss how they were experimenting with their work and to be able to collaborate with each other. So there's very much a feel of discovery on both sides of the campus. Every time you turn a corner, you really see something different. You know, I've been um, here for over four years now, and every once in a while I still turn a corner and see a new sculptural relief that I didn't notice before or a piece of a mural that I hadn't seen. Um, There's just an amazing sense of discovery, and because everything's in that Mayan revival style, um, it's really interesting. You see things that look like, as my six-year-old would say, we have something that looks like a bat monster, (laughs) (laughs) which is a very fanciful, beautiful image of um, a Mayan god with wings. And so it's a... It's very unique, and that fantasy architecture captures it well, that that mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm. So talk about some of the artwork on display and the collections that you house in addition to the Bat Monster. Um, <laughs> I would expect, you know, that your artwork also added to the narrative of American heritage that helped you earn the National Historic Landmark designation. Yes. Um, a big part of our mission is really keeping the legacy of the artist colony alive here. And so during that time, the patron of the artist colony, Mary Curtis Bach, as well as the founder. Andre Smith specifically promoted American artists and encouraged them to experiment with new mediums and with new styles. And that's still what we do today. So our exhibitions focus on two different areas. One is on current American artists and the other is on our legacy and our history. We have an exhibition opening January 16th, for example, that actually compares the work of our founder um, during his surrealist time period with Salvador Dali. So we'll have some Salvador Dali works here. So we'll be comparing our founder with his much more famous contemporary, but they approach their surrealist artwork in very much the same way. Mm. So that's an example of a legacy-based exhibition. And then we also bring in, as I mentioned, contemporary American artists, both from Florida as well as all over the U.S. We have an artist-in-residence program as well as an artist-in-action program where we have both professional studio space that's a competitive um, opportunity for artists to come and work here as well as live work space. So we bring down artists from all over the country to live and work here, and then we exhibit the work they've created here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, that leads me to the next question I was going to ask you uh, about, and that is the artist in residency program, because even though the um, art center started off as a colony, you still kind of maintained that, that legacy on a smaller scale, it sounds like. Yes, we actually restarted that program in 2013, and we're very proud of it, and it is our long-term goal and our strategic plan to be able to open up more and more studios to eventually have 
the exact same mission that we did as an artist colony in that we'll be able to host multiple artists in residence as well as artists in action at one time. So we'll once again become an artist colony with the exception being that we're very focused on public interaction with the artists as well as our collections. You mentioned, um, you asked about our collections. We have collections varying from contemporary American artists to the Bach Fellows, which was the name of the artists who came down from our cla- during our classic period from 37 to 59, and they include famous American artists such as Milton Avery and Ralston Crawford. So our collections are really built around that classic period as well as the exhibitions that we focus on now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the application process for the Artist-in-Residency program? Oh, we do an annual call for artists. It usually goes out during the summer. And then we have a committee of scholars called the Artists and Historian Advisory Council who then reviews all the applications and selects our artists in residence for the year. And we have a couple of important criteria. Um, We focus mostly on professional fine artists. However, we do sometimes have opportunities for emerging artists to come and work as well. And we look for someone who not only has a very cohesive body of work, but also someone who's interested in interacting with the public because that's such an important part of who we are. We um, also have studio art instruction here on campus, and a lot of our exhibitions have an interactive component. Mm-hmm. So for our artists in residence and our artists in action, we look for somebody who is interested in hosting a workshop for the public, is interested in opening their doors when they're working in the studio so that the public can come in and really learn about the creative process. Now I understand why you refer to uh, Maitland Art Center as an oasis of cre- creativity because it sounds very peaceful and, and it offers a beautiful fostering uh, environment. So as, as a resident of Central Florida, what attractions, in addition to the Maitland Art Center, uh, should visitors see? I mean, give us some tips to explore the area, uh, particularly for those who want to travel outside of the, the amusement park gates. Um, like a local? Well, for those of us who live in Central Florida and the greater Orlando area, um, we call everything sort of downtown and (laughs) north, North Orlando. It's completely different than South Orlando. South Orlando is wonderful to visit, but that's really where your tourist attractions are. Mm -hmm. And from downtown north, we have all sorts of wonderful things from great food with gastropubs and award-winning restaurants to amazing historic sites to public art and sculpture. Um, There's a couple really small gems that not everyone knows about. And, you know, one is just down the street from us, which is the Enzian Theater. The Enzian Theater is an art house theater. Um, They host the Florida Film Festival, which is um, one of the most lauded film festivals in the southeast. It's really um, amazing what they do over there. And it's in a beautiful building. They've got a mural on the outside. It's really just a great little intimate um, art theater experience. So I would highly recommend the Enzian Theater. Also, just down the street from us, you have a great historic area in Winter Park, which is a small city similar to Maitland that is our neighbor. And Park Avenue is a great experience. Historic buildings, um, restaurants, shopping. Right on Park Avenue is the Morse Museum, um, and that actually has the best collection of Tiffany's work um, in the world. So mm. there's lots of little treasures around here um, that people don't know about, and it's really worth a trip um, north of Disney to come see it. 
I would say so, and, and really, um, it's been a nice surprise uh, for me to discover not only the Maitland Art Center, but some of the um, other hidden gems that you just shared. And, uh, and I thank you, Andrea, for spending time with us on uh, World Footprints to, to share some treasure troves um, not easily known or widely known in Orlando. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope that you will have an opportunity to come see us and also that many of your listeners will take a trip, too. Indeed. Thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints radio show. Our goal is to inspire a purposeful life through travel. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show or if you want to hear our World Footprints travel report giving you today's breaking travel and world news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. While there, click on any social media icon to follow us on your favorite social network at World Footprints. Also, you can now hear World Footprints on iHeartRadio. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media.